Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Welcome, and this time I want to extend a special offer. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about criteria for benchmarking your code of conduct. I talk about benchmarking code fairly frequently on this uh, podcast because we talk about code and written standards fairly frequently. Um, But I don't think, or at least it's been a while since I got into sort of the nitty gritty of what you would look at uh, if you're benchmarking your code of conduct and what exactly that entails. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the process, uh, sort of big picture of what you might do if you're going to engage in a benchmarking project. And then I'm going to talk about the different categories uh, that uh, you want to take a look at when you're uh, reviewing uh, other codes of conduct, other written standards, and comparing those to your current code uh, for the purposes of benchmarking. Uh, but first, the special offer, which is uh, for those of you out there who have a code of conduct and would like somebody to uh, take a look at it and give you sort of an informal benchmarking uh, and talk a little bit about best practices and talk about some of the topics I'm going to mention here in the next couple of minutes uh, and give you their opinion having seen other codes of conduct, I'm going to extend that offer to listeners uh, only. So if you get in touch with me, um, and you can do so through our website at compliancebeat.com, uh, moreheadconsulting.com, or email me directly at eric at moreheadconsulting.com. Uh, I, uh, as I've always say, love to hear from the listeners. And if you get in touch with me and say, uh, I am a subscriber to the Compliance Beat podcast, and I am interested in having you take a look at our code and give us your informal opinion, and you send me a link or a copy of your code of conduct, uh, then I'm, I will happily set up a half an hour telephone conference with you and your team uh, and talk over uh, some of the items I'm going to speak about here in a few minutes, uh, give you my impression of sort of where your code stands in comparison to pure codes of conduct. So that's a special offer just to you, dear listener uh, of the Compliance Beat podcast. Uh, get in touch and I will set up a complimentary uh, discussion about your code if you are interested. So uh, when we talk about code of conduct benchmarking, really uh, the first step in any project is to identify uh, those codes that you are going to, uh, if you're going to do a formal benchmarking exercise, those codes that you're going to compare to. And I always say I I believe there are two different groups that you want to pick from. One is the obvious group, which are truly peer organizations, organizations that are in the same industry, uh, have a similar or same geographic footprint, same population size, uh, you know, have demographic similarities to your organization. And obviously you want to take a look at those truly peer organizations, the, the ones that come to mind uh, directly, your competitors and such. Uh, but there's a second group I want you to consider as well when you're uh, pulling from the pool of potential codes of conduct to benchmark against. And that would be organizations that are completely different from your your, uh, organization demographically. Maybe not in every sense, but in a different industry, different size. Uh, If you happen to be in manufacturing, maybe you pick an organization that's in healthcare or retail or um, aerospace or whatever. Something different. Uh, Get a 
uh, a wide selection. I think it's important to, uh, for lack of a better term, to cross-pollinate when you're taking a look at uh, benchmarking your code of conduct. And, and by the way, as I often say when I talk about code of conduct, uh, everything I say today is applicable to all of your written compliance standards. So whether we're talking about a employee handbook or standalone policy on anti-corruption or your conflicts of in, in, in interest uh, policy or procedure, uh, most of what we're going to talk about today, most of what I talk about when I talk about code of conduct or code of ethics applies across the board. And remember, our, our, our friends at the Department of Justice, our friends at SEC, uh, uh, regulators and other stakeholders internationally don't necessarily make the distinction between your code and your other written policies. So if your code is in great shape but your written policies are impenetrable, that, depending on the circumstances, that may be a problem and may uh, lead to you not getting mitigation in a certain situation. So uh, whenever I talk about code, whenever I'm talking about uh, different ways to benchmark, uh, that's true for all written standards. Now, it is definitely true that it is harder to benchmark your anti-corruption policy. has to be on the website of all publicly traded companies uh, on the NASDAQ and NYSE. Uh, so you have a readily available uh, pool of potential benchmark candidates uh, that you may not necessarily have for other compliance written standards. But be that as it may, you need to uh, think about um, all of these concepts when you're uh, drafting, redrafting, uh, evaluating the effectiveness of all your written standards for compliance. So uh, once you have that pool, however you select it, and I encourage you uh, not to look for only perfect examples that have everything exactly the way you want, the perfect design, uh, the perfect use of uh, uh, learning aids, the perfect uh, length, the perfect uh, 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 the perfect group of risk topics that, that are totally in line with what you expect. You're not going to find one code or a group of codes that embody all of those elements. So when I'm going to talk about uh, seven different elements here for the remainder of this podcast. And when you're benchmarking, maybe you pull a code that has a good example of one or two of these seven elements um, and, and then uh, look to other codes uh, for good examples of the other elements. It's going to be hard to find a code that's hitting on all cylinders all the time. There are some that, that perhaps do, but uh, I encourage you uh, to find the best example of the different categories of, uh, that we're going to talk about here and not necessarily one code uh, to rule them all. Uh, you need to uh, uh, have codes that you're taking a look at that perhaps exhibit things you want to avoid uh, in putting together your new code of conduct. For example, maybe you find a code that you know has is from a peer organization that has good coverage on the risk topics that you're interested in, but the language is at a too high a grade level. Uh, that is something to consider in your benchmarking exercise, uh, and 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 when you're making a determination of what you want to do for your code. So. Uh, there are uh, different ways to uh, evaluate a code of conduct. I use a modified scale of about seven, uh, not about seven, seven different categories that I'm going to talk about here. And this comes from a couple of different sources, primarily, uh, and I don't know if it's still on their website, but Ethisphere used to have an eight-point uh, code of conduct evaluation uh, scheme. 
or, or categories, eight different categories that, uh, that Ethisphere had determined, and this is a while back, six or eight years ago, made uh, for good benchmarking of code of conduct. And I, you know, why remake the wheel if you've got a, a rubric that works? Uh, so this is sort of the modified uh, Eric Moorhead version of the Ethisphere scale for evaluating code of conduct, if you will. But I wanted to mention that because uh, Ethisphere had uh, and was evaluating codes of conduct uh, pretty pretty far back, six, like I said, six or eight years ago. And they used to have a benchmark uh, data set. They don't anymore. There is a benchmark data set that uh, Ryan O'Connell in Houston uh, had on the U of H uh, website, and I believe the, the, the uh, law center at the at U University of Houston. And I believe it's still up. I don't know that it's been updated in the last few years, but it was the Fortune 500 uh, organizations, all of their codes of conduct in a data set, and that could be valuable for benchmarking purposes. Although it is, I believe, hasn't been updated since maybe 2015. I could be wrong about that, uh, but uh, you you might look that up. I don't know of any other publicly available data sets, uh, but I think it's worthwhile when you're doing this exercise to identify those, again, from those two groups, the, the broader group and the more specific peer group that make the most sense for your organization. Um, it, it can be helpful to kind of look at these broader data sets that if, there's, if you can find them, uh, but I don't know if that's as valuable as actually doing uh, the homework yourself. So the first thing that uh, I always encourage people to look at and look into uh, when you are benchmarking a code of conduct is the message uh, from the top, the tone from the top, the, the message either from the CCO the, or the CEO or the chairman of the board or all, the, all of the above. I think L'Oreal's code of conduct, for example, I think you have the entire board of directors uh, sign off on a letter on the front of their code of conduct. So there are many different ways to establish tone from the top and the executive uh, messaging that's important uh, when you're talking about a code of conduct. Uh, there's no right way to do this. I think there are some components uh, that I feel, uh, having looked at a lot of these codes of conduct, that are really vital. Uh, one uh, is that that executive's been in business, how wonderful the company is, and how we are all, you know, rowing in the same direction. You know, a lot of aspirational statements, but it doesn't really touch on compliance. Uh, this really needs to bring it back home. Talk about ethical culture and compliance, and how important that is, how mission critical that is to the organization and its and its. Uh, uh, the direction that you're going in. Um, so you need to, even if your executive, uh, chief executive wants to talk about the history of the organization and the direction uh, they perceive for the organization, the mission, uh, that needs to be brought into why the code is important to that mission. Uh, so make sure that that is discussed. The, the, another important thing uh, that needs to be mentioned is that the code applies to everyone. Uh, that is a great and very important statement for the CEO to make, not only uh, on in the uh, front piece letter in the code of conduct, but but uh, periodically and repeatedly uh, whenever they speak about culture and compliance to the population. But it certainly should be in that uh, message that's in the code of conduct. Uh, it should talk about uh, the resources that are available for people to speak up ask questions and report concerns, and it should talk about the non-retaliation policy of the organization. Uh, very key uh, to make sure that you tee up the importance, uh, the, the, the number one expectation we have for our, our uh, stakeholders and employees uh, to get out of the code of conduct is that they ask questions and report concerns. 
Uh, if we get nothing else out of the code of conduct, we want to encourage that. And we have to not only encourage them to do that, but we have to uh, encourage them that uh, retaliation won't be tolerated. Uh, because we all know uh, that's the number one reason why they don't come forward. Uh, the second thing, uh, the second area that I would suggest uh, is important, and, and right after that kind of uh, introductory uh, call to arms from the CEO, uh, and and even in that introductory uh, call to arms and throughout, is readability. Um, there are different uh, uh, philosophies that I've seen over the years about readability. They primarily focus on grade level. I think grade level is a great tool, but it should not be your only tool in determining uh, how you construct the language of your code. Um, and also, uh, I know that in the past uh, there have been uh, statements made. I know SCCE, I believe, used to have in their compliance manual and maybe uh, was something that was uh, regularly discussed at the uh, uh, at the uh, SCCE academies. I don't know if it's still the case that you wanted to shoot for a grade level eight. Well, perhaps for some organizations, uh, English grade level eight is not only attainable, but preferable. But I don't think that that is a universal uh, thing. Uh, number one, uh, on some of these topics, getting to a grade level eight is very aspirational and hard to do. Uh, grade level 10 is probably more attainable uh, for most uh, of the topics we're talking about in a code of conduct in 2019. Uh, but even a grade level 12 is not necessarily a bad thing, depending on your population. Every organization is different. If you have a population that includes a lot of people with a lot of different educational attainment uh, from low to high, then perhaps you need to keep your grade level a little bit lower in English uh, because of who you're trying to reach. But if you have a, a population that is overwhelmingly uh, people who have uh, graduated college or even uh, have professional degrees or engineers or uh, uh, lawyers or um, uh, CPAs or who knows what, uh, if you are comfortable that their uh, language attainment, their educational attainment is higher, then perhaps you can have a higher grade level. But grade level is not just the words that you choose to use. Uh, it's, it's also based upon how confusing or not confusing uh, the organization of those words happen to be in the code. So you need to take a, a look not only at the vocabulary of the code, but, but is, it, is it confusing? Is it in legalese? Has it been written by a lawyer like me without a, an a, a editor coming behind them and making sure that they've fixed the problems? Um, that's an uh, early, early compliance lesson um, that I had uh, years ago when I first started helping with codes is that I needed, it needs to be a team effort, uh, even, um, even if you've written several of these, and uh, that it needs to be a, it is a t totally a cross-functional effort that includes people who are professional editors and writers um, uh, and have that experience, have that marketing or, or advertising background or broad communications background and not just a legal background. You want coverage in the code. You want to make sure that you address all the risks and you address them completely, but you cannot do it in such a way that no one else understands it other than the person who wrote it. Uh, so that is another important aspect. The third is uh, reporting early and often. I already mentioned that, that this is how important it is. I already mentioned it as a subset of the first point around tone from the top and executive message. Reporting needs to be in the code 
prominently uh, and, and displayed in a graphical way that's easy to understand. Uh, all of the methods of reporting. If your primary method is to go to your manager, then that needs to be very, very clear and, and, and prominently displayed. Um, so, and as I said, it should be early and often. So you mentioned it in the CEO message, it probably should be in the first couple of pages of the, the, the heart of the code of conduct, uh, where you talk about the importance of reporting and the different methods available. And I often encourage organizations to put it on the back page or the back cover, uh, to have the hotline helpline, uh, contact information for HR and or compliance and or, uh, uh, different uh, methods for um, making reports and asking questions. Uh, it can't be too frequent. Uh, again, if you get if a stakeholder gets nothing else out of your code of conduct, the thing you want them to get is that there are ways to report and that they should ask questions. And they need the resources they need to know how to do that. Uh, a fourth area uh, that I often look for is the incorporation of values or an ethical focus. Not all organizations have organizational values. Not all organizations uh, uh, use their organizational values in their code of conduct. You often see, uh, again, the second or third page, usually after that CEO message, is the value statement. It's the five values of the organization. And very often, unless one of those values is integrity or something else that's going to get mentioned in the code of conduct, you never see those values again in the rest of you know, the next 35 pages. Uh, the old joke that I use on this is uh, it often looks like there was a Xerox error and this page that talks about values got into this otherwise legal document. Um, I don't think that's effective and I don't think that's necessary. Um, but by the same token, this is like uh, grade level. Uh, your mileage may vary depending on how you communicate and how you communicate about the organizational values. If you have organizational values that are well publicized, that people know about and that they uh, regularly get communicated to about uh, from other parts of the organization, well, then you want to piggyback on that and you want to take advantage of the fact that these values are already fairly well ingrained in the organization. Uh, but you don't want to just do it on the third page of the document only. You want to bring those values into the discussion of the risk topics throughout. Um, some organizations now uh, use uh, values as a uh, organizing principle for the code. Uh, so if you have uh, uh, subheadings for throughout the code, they may be the you know the five different values. If that works for you, then awesome. If that doesn't work for you, then don't worry about it. And and but if you want to involve the values, imbue the values in the code of conduct, they don't have to be just the topic headings. They can be in the discussion of the different risks and the expectations throughout the code. Try to use that language if it's if it's language that people are going to recognize and is going to appeal to them because it's it, the, the organizational values are otherwise communicated in a strong way inside the organization. You should link those values. You should link that strong communication to the messages that you're trying to send uh, throughout the code of conduct. Uh, that leads us to risk topic coverage, the heart of the matter. Uh, to me, uh, what gets in, what doesn't get in uh, a code of conduct is an art, not a science. Um, uh, and this is both topics actually being mentioned and the extent to which you discuss those topics. I think there are some obvious things that should not be happening in codes of conduct with regards to topic coverage. Uh, the most obvious one being talking about the legislative history of a particular statute. Um, a particular bugaboo of mine is in anti-corruption discussions to get into detail 
uh, other than saying that there are laws that uh, uh, cover, uh, that, that have serious repercussions for our organization that cover this conduct, to talk about even naming the FCPA, even naming the UK Bribery Act, the Brazilian Clean Companies Act, and uh, OECD, good guidance, and it's unnecessary. So when we're talking about risk topic coverage, there's two things. What gets in, which I'll say about a little bit about here in a second, and how much gets in. The answer to how much is as little as you need to get coverage and express the expectations you have for the individuals in your organization. So however short that can be, <laughs> if that can be really short, if it can be a paragraph, that's awesome. And there are lots of topics where a paragraph will do. If you can get away with two paragraphs uh, instead of six paragraphs, that's great. What you don't need is two and a half pages on anti-corruption. I don't care how serious a risk anti-corruption is. I don't care if your organization is still on an N, a, a, a DPA or NPA uh, uh, with the, you know, the fraud section of the Department of Justice and SEC. You don't need three pages or two and a half pages on, on anti-corruption in your code of conduct. You may need a standalone policy that talks about uh, these issues. You may need to have some really uh, thoughtfully written uh, scenarios and other learning aids on that page that help people understand the salient points. But, but two pages of solid text written by a lawyer doesn't serve anyone. And you need to do away with it if that's the way your code looks on some of these rest topics. Uh, second thing on risk topics is how do you pick them? How do you know what goes in and what stays out? Well, again, this goes back to the, the, what I was talking about before I started walking through the different um, aspects for benchmarking, and that's selecting uh, those uh, peer codes. And that's why you want to certainly have peer codes that are truly peers, organizations that are in the same industry, have the same geographic footprint, have the same population size. Uh, perhaps if you're a... Uh, a government contractor, then you select a few other government contractors that maybe are higher on the maturity scale than your organization. Uh, that's how you uh, make some determinations. You go through and you see what they're talking about in their codes of conduct, what topics are discussed there. And you also uh, take a look at uh, what's coming in on your helpline and hotline and up through the reporting channels in your organization. What are the questions that you're being asked? What are the things that people are concerned about in your organization? Um, uh, that real, will tell you right off the bat uh, where you need uh, some strong discussion on particular topics. Uh, so it's, it's an art, not a science. Uh, uh, what you don't want to do is spend a lot of time on stuff uh, that is not going to help the audience you're trying to reach. In, you know, legislative history, long, boring discussions about uh, uh, certain aspects of uh, anti-corruption law just doesn't matter. You need to talk to them about the scenarios that they face in the every, in everyday operations of the organization and how what they're supposed to do and when they're supposed to raise concerns and ask questions. Next thing, uh, topic that we look at whenever we're benchmarking code of conduct is the use of learning aids or comprehension aids. So those are going to be scenarios. Those are going to be graphical 
uses of graphics, uh, you know, uh, uh, that for call-out boxes, for definitions, or bu short bulleted lists instead of long paragraphs. You know, uh, presenting the information either in a graphical format or in a different kind of typewritten format that is more that breaks it out of, uh, of uh, long lengthy paragraphs. So some sort of comprehension aids, use of color, use of graphics, uh, use of icons um, to, to uh, draw people to the salient points that we want them to get, whether that's a scenario that walks through a common issue that comes up over and over, or whether that's a definition that explains a uh, perhaps foreign, con um, uh, foreign concept to the audience. And then the last thing is design. Uh, the cliche I use over and over again, I'm going to continue to use it until the cows come home. There's another cliche that probably should be retired. And that is that your code of conduct in 2019 should look more like an annual report and, la or, and marketing materials and less like a legal document. It needs to have color, needs to have photography, needs to have slick design, as slick as you can afford to do. If you have internal resources, if you've got a communications and marketing department where you might be able to uh, get uh, some help, that's awesome. If you have a little bit of a budget to go out and get some graphic design help, it's not ridiculously expensive to do that for a instrument that is import as important to your organization as your code of conduct. Uh, it is a the 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 uh, expense that's involved in laying out and designing a, a a pleasant and attractive document is ridiculous. This is a foundational document. This is the first thing that a regulator is going to look at uh, when they start collecting uh, information about your program, about your compliance program. It is the uh, you know to use the terminology that the. Uh, SEC and Department of Justice have used over and over again. It is the cornerstone of your compliance program. Uh, it is therefore worth spending a few thousand dollars to make it actually look appealing and interesting for somebody to pick up and review. So take some time, uh, consider design. Uh, and uh, interactivity uh, as sort of a cor cor corollary or subsection of design. Uh, more and more organizations have uh, websites or mini sites or uh, what they call living codes or, uh, you know, some sort of uh, interactive elements. You can put interactive elements in the PDF, Adobe PDF format these days. I do that often with my clients who don't want to necessarily have a web uh, development or don't have the budget to do a web development. Um, you can have some uh, limited act interactivity within the PDF format. Uh, there are lots of ways to get there. The other thing to consider too is uh, uh, having a web portal that has some interactive elements. It's not necessarily your entire code of conduct, uh, but but it has uh, uh, collateral information and it's a sort of a landing page uh, for code of conduct information. And then you still have your traditional uh, written document uh, that goes along with it. So those are some ideas. And as I said at the top, if you are interested, please do get in touch with me. Uh, either at compliancebeat.com or moreheadconsulting.com or eric at moreheadconsulting.com. Happy to, uh, if you provide your code of conduct, set up a short uh, call for us to discuss and I can give you, uh, you know, some of my ideas of what I see when I review your code. Just let me know. And until next time, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.